Pray with me. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. This summer we are preaching a sermon series on two slim books, Ruth and Jonah, and I know more than a few people who hesitate to read the Old Testament because of the violence and war, but in these two minority reports, God's steadfast, inclusive mercy is revealed in unexpected ways. It's an artful and sometimes challenging piece of literature. You've heard Bill's recap last week, and you've likely heard the Sunday School version of the story where God asks Jonah to deliver a message to the wicked Ninevites. Jonah books passage on a ship to run away from God's request. He's thrown overboard in a storm and swallowed up by a huge fish. And we've been told that one of the morals of this story is don't run when God asks you to do something or there will be consequences. This is why a number of 18th century pulpits are shaped like large fish to remind the preacher of their task. Today we are reading chapter 3 of 4 where Jonah responds to God's second nearly identical call to go to the city of Nineveh. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah went out to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink any water. Humans and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change God's mind. God may turn from fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed God's mind about the calamity that was said to be brought upon them, and God did not do it. Thanks be to God for God's holy word. As readers, we often put ourselves in Jonah's place, a good position to hear God's word for us today, but it's not the only one. The bulletin cover image today is from an outsider artist or folk artist named David Butler. Because the person on the boat looks happy to me, I imagine this figure is one of the sailors. If you ran into him at an ancient dockside pub in Joppa, his whale of a tail might sound something like this. One day, a man shows up at the pier in a hurry to get out of town, so we set sail for the edge of the earth. I don't know who or what he was running from, but Wow, did he make God angry. This storm was unbelievable. Jonah told us to throw him overboard, but 
The sailors, we don't want his blood on our hands, so we rowed until our arms burned. The winds were too strong, so we had no choice but to toss him overboard and pray to Jonah's God like we had never prayed. Suddenly, the storm stopped, and we looked overboard to see Jonah's feet disappearing into the fish's mouth. Back at port, we learned that Jonah's life had been spared. We are not murderers. The fish was an answer to our prayers. The power of art and literature lies in their multivalent possibility. Using scraps of tin, roofing, and found material, David Butler created colorful, a colorful yard show filled with what the Smithsonian describes as a dynamic oasis in which meanings and interpretations are infinite. Butler's art is known for illuminating the truth that all that makes up our surroundings and every person, regardless of race or background or education, has merit and value. In the same way, the author of Jonah uses humor and imagery to create a scenario where the huge fish becomes an unlikely agent of God's mercy for both the sailors and for Jonah. This tall tale becomes a story in which we might explore a number of theological and ethical questions. So chapter three. It paints a ridiculous scene as the author continues to use the word big over and over for comic effect. There's a big fish, a big storm, a big wind, and now we have a big city. The author is exaggerating when he or she says it's a three-day walk across with just a few words from the reluctant Jonah. The entire city repents. Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown is all he needs to say to inspire a mad rush to go out and find the scratchiest, most uncomfortable sackcloth to be had. The king of the city then takes it a silly step farther, decreeing that even the animals wear sackcloth. There's no king of Nineveh. It's a capital city of the Assyrian Empire. The entire chapter is ridiculous in its exaggeration. And yet, it's been said that Jonah is the most successful prophet in the Hebrew Bible. Ten words, it's all he needs to turn a city around. Jonah should be out updating his resume on LinkedIn with this enormous accomplishment. But no, he's going to go sit under a plant and pout. Why? Because these wicked enemy people have just proven Jonah's proclamation wrong. He predicted the entire city would be wiped off the face of the earth. The Ninevites... Take a gamble on God's mercy. They repent, God relents, and Jonah looks like a raving fool. Haven't we all been in a situation where speaking up makes us look foolish or worse? Maybe colleagues hesitate to question a doctor's prescription error. Engineers might be pushed to meet a deadline even when they know there's a faulty piece of equipment. Students do the social calculus before deciding to stand up for the person being bullied at the next lunch table. And in Outlaws, that popular movie on Netflix right now, Owen, played by Adam Devine, considers the risk of losing his fiance if he tells her her parents are bank robbers. Harvard Business School professor Amy Edmondson names this the voice silence calculation. It turns out that remaining silent is often easier because the mo almost certain and immediate benefit of being silent provides safety from retaliation and just plain being wrong. On the other hand, speaking up benefits the group, 
often at some unknown and less likely point in the future. Can you, bl can you blame Jonah for deciding to run away rather than speak up? The Ninevites get the benefit of God's mercy while Jonah's doomsday prediction makes him look less reliable than a soapbox preacher yelling on the corner. According to Edmondson, the antidote to our tendency to be silent, even in the face of real risk and ethical concerns, is to create psychological safety. Organizations and the people in them learn and grow when errors can be revealed, questions raised, and there's openness to changing direction, turning around, even repenting if necessary. So I learned a little bit about this voice silence phenomenon when I, uh, I learned it from a bishop when I was away on my study leave the last few weeks at Virginia Theological Seminary, where I'm working toward my Doctor of Ministry degree. And from Seminary Hill in Alexandria, I was able to visit some of the museums and monuments of Washington, D.C., including the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Freedom House, the former site of one of the largest slave trading companies in the country. Virginia Theological is currently celebrating its 200th year, and perhaps as institutions tend to do when they reach a big milestone like this, the seminary looked back through their archives and there amidst wonderful, faithful accomplishments, they found some history they weren't as proud of. So in 2019, the seminary committed to research, uncover, and recognize the black people who labored on campus during slavery, reconstruction, and segregation. They work with genealogists and local families and seminary employees to locate descendants of these exploited laborers. They have identified on campus buildings still standing that were built by enslaved persons, some of them borrowed from nearby Mount Vernon. Being a Christian seminary, they heard God's call to repent, so they started by acknowledging the past and seeking a better way for the future. Perhaps it would have been easier to keep quiet about this history, but instead they've committed to making amends in the form of a fund for descendants and supporting the work of justice and inclusion within their own denomination. And they've committed to learning and allowing room for this initiative to evolve as they hear more from families and their descendants as they speak their stories out loud. The book of Jonah doesn't tell us how the Ninevites repented after they fasted with their sheep and goats in their burlap garb. Doesn't necessarily tell us how we are to, or what we are to do, but we do know a little bit about the Ninevites' violent history, their wicked ways and their acts of war committed against Jonah's people because they carved their own misdeeds into stone. King Sennacherib, the ruler of the Assyrian Empire, commissioned large stone panels to celebrate his victory and to decorate his palace in Nineveh in 700 BCE. Now on view at the British Museum, these large pieces depict a battle, the victory, and the brutality his own army inflicted upon the Judean people. Even so, in the book of Jonah, God changes God's mind when the Ninevites turn from their evil ways. Scholar Amy Jill Levine says this about the book of Jonah. People are judged not according to ethnicity, but by their ethics. Jonah is in the same universalistic tradition as the first chapter of Genesis, which proclaims that all people are made in the image of God, even our worst enemies. 
In its multivalent, humorous way, this slim little minority report stretches the limits of our imagination. God is merciful to the Ninevites, to the sailors, to Jonah, and to us. God will go to ridiculous lengths to accomplish God's goals, never relenting until all creation is redeemed. God's mercy is both wonderful and frightening. This week's newsletter from Richard Rohr's Center for Action and Contemplation put it this way, the understanding that I am a holy child of God contains within itself unrealized consequences. If I embrace this notion about myself, I must accept its corollary, that if I am a holy child of God, so is everyone else. Jonah will struggle with this next week as he sits pouting, pouting under his little plant in the final chapter. But for today, knowing then that God is inescapably gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and slow to anger, our task is to speak boldly, to love ridiculously, to live faithfully, and to create space for others to do the same in our communities, our families, and our organizations. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.